0: Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, October 12, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Tulsi Gabbard leaves the Democratic Party. The U.S. and Germany promise advanced missile defense systems after wave of attacks on Ukraine. Israel and Lebanon reach a historic border deal. U.S. banks cut their political donations and boost Democrats' share. J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan clash in an Ohio Senate debate. A Kashmiri separatist leader dies in Indian custody. Hong Kong won't act on a sanctioned Russian superyacht. Putin meets with the President of the United Arab Emirates. A report says that microbial life may have self-destructed on Mars. And New Zealand proposes a tax on greenhouse gases from farm animals.
1: In our first story, Tulsi Gabbard leaves the Democratic Party. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, CNN, Guardian, Rolling Stone Magazine, and Breitbart. On Tuesday, former Hawaiian Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard announced she was leaving the Democratic Party in a video that served as the first episode of her The Tulsi Gabbard Show podcast. She didn't announce a new party affiliation. Gabbard, who was the first American Samoan and first practicing Hindu to serve in Congress, accused the Democrats of being, quote, under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeness, who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism, who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms enshrined in our Constitution. She urged other independent-minded Democrats to follow her out of the party after she explained, quote, I believe in a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party does not. Instead, it stands for a government that is of, by, and for the powerful elite. Gabbard has often found herself at odds with members of the Democratic Party. During the 2020 race for the Democratic presidential nomination, she was criticized by fellow candidate Kamala Harris, now the United States Vice President, for not calling Syrian President Bashar al-Assad a war criminal. Previously, Gabbard expressed doubts about the accusations of atrocities committed by Assad. More recently, Gabbard spoke at the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, drawing stern condemnation from Democrats and demonstrating her movement rightward in U.S. politics. Gabbard's announcement comes less than a month before the midterm elections. It also comes about eight months into the war between Russia and Ukraine, in which the U.S. is providing Ukraine with billions of dollars
0: of support. All right, those were the facts on this story, and this one is ripe for narrative spins. We've got two contrasting political narratives on this story. The Republican narrative comes from Red State. Good for Gabbard, leaving the Democrats and exposing their dangerous policies along the way. Hopefully, more will follow her lead to make sure Democrats don't realize their goals and turn the U.S. into something it should never be, a nation run by woke, cowardly, and militaristic elites. The Democratic narrative coming from Daily Kos.
1: This is the most anticlimactic October surprise possible. For nearly a decade, Gabbard's politics have run counter to what the Democratic Party stands for. She's supported anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ legislation and cozied up to the far right. She can keep enjoying the limelight of Tucker Carlson tonight and Russian media outlets. Democrats moved on long ago.
0: I wonder if there's fear if Gabbard here is going to pull a Ross Perot and be kind of a third party Democrat leaning person who swings the election for the other side. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. The conflict in Ukraine reaches day two hundred thirty of the fighting, and we have a roundup of the stories. The U.S. and Germany promise advanced missile defense systems after a wave of Russian attacks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Ukraine Forum, the Associated Press, and Pravda. The U.S. and Germany have vowed to urgently deliver advanced missile defense systems to Ukraine following a wave of Russian attacks across the country on Monday. While the U.S. didn't publicly specify which systems would be sent, Germany announced it would deliver four Iris-T SLM systems reportedly capable of defending against missiles at a range of up to 25 miles, which is 40 kilometers. Ukrainian officials said a total of 19 people were killed and 105 were injured in Monday's attacks, which spanned across 12 regions and the city of Kiev. They added that as many as 301 settlements remain without electricity. The bombings were widely condemned by officials from Ukraine, Europe, the United States, and elsewhere. Monday's barrage also came hours before a pre-scheduled U.N. General Assembly debate on Russia's annexation of four territories in Ukraine. Later this week, the topic will be the subject of a U.N. resolution for which Russia proposed a secret ballot, but this was rejected by 107 votes to 13, with 39 abstentions. Meanwhile, renewed Russian strikes were carried out overnight in the regions of Zaporizhia, where five civilians were reported killed, Mykolaiv, and Sumy where an additional civilian death was reported in each territory. Three parts of nipo were also targeted, though there were no reports of civilian casualties in the area. On Tuesday, Russian strikes were also recorded in the city of Lviv, as well as the region of Venetia, where the latest in thermal power plant was reportedly hit. Serhii Borzov, head of the Regional Ministry Administration, initially claimed the plant was struck by Iranian-supplied kamikaze drones. This detail was later removed, though reports of the strike itself remain. Ukrainian officials also claimed that a number of Russian missiles were intercepted over the regions of Kyiv, Kemelnitsky, and Odessa. Elsewhere, following ongoing negotiations, Ukrainian officials said they have recovered the bodies of 62 soldiers from Russia, including 53 fighters who were killed in a strike on the Olenivka prison camp in Donetsk. It wasn't clear whether the remains of any Russian soldiers were returned in exchange. Thank you for the facts, Scott. We do have three
1: spins that have emerged from this story, beginning with an anti-Russian narrative. Coming from Guardian, Russia's missile strikes across Ukraine are a cynical response to the attack on the Crimean Bridge. They served little to no military value, but were intended to strike
0: fear into Ukraine's leadership and its civilian population. The pro russian narrative comes from TASS. Russia's strikes served a clear purpose. They met terrorist attacks on Russian territory with a firm and decisive response. If this unflinching message goes unheard and more terrorist acts continue, Only the Ukrainian leadership will be responsible for the consequences.
1: And there is a nerd narrative. It says there's a 42% chance that there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before the year 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. In our next story, Israel and Lebanon reach a historic agreement on maritime borders. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by CNBC, Al Jazeera, Associated Press, U.S. News & World Report, and Guardian following months of U.S.-mediated negotiations, Israel and Lebanon have reached a historic agreement over their shared maritime border that enables both countries to develop offshore gas fields in their waters and increase gas production amid the global energy crisis. In response to the deal, which has yet to be fortified, Lebanon's Deputy Speaker Elias Bou Saab said it satisfies both sides and that, quote, all of Lebanon's remarks have been taken into account. Israeli National Security Advisor Ial Hulada echoed the sentiment for Israel. Resolving a territorial dispute surrounding a part of the Mediterranean Sea, the deal would see around 330 square miles of water, which both Lebanon and Israel claim, divided. This would allow Lebanon to produce gas from a key Kana natural gas field, but pay royalties to Israel for any gas extracted from the Israeli side. Security officials have lauded the deal, saying it could lower tensions with Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group, which has reportedly threatened to attack Israeli natural gas sites and which Israel believes is the most immediate military threat. Though the group has yet to formally comment on the agreement, a senior Lebanese official said Hezbollah has endorsed the deal and considers negotiations to be over. Israeli natural gas production is reportedly up 22% this year due to Europe's declining reliance on Russian oil. Since 2020, the country has been shipping gas to
0: Egypt, where it's liquefied and shipped to Europe. Jerusalem Post brings us a pro-establishment narrative spin. This is truly a win for both sides, as Israel will be protecting its border security and Lebanon will be able to grow its natural gas production at a time of economic desperation. What's most extraordinary about the U.S.-brokered deal, which attests to the U.S.'s strong relationship with Israel, is that both countries will be able to pursue their interests without violence between Israel and Hezbollah.
1: Times of Israel gives us an establishment critical narrative. This deal is not necessarily a win-win for both countries, as no one knows yet whether the fields on Lebanon's side of the border contain commercially viable sources of oil. Even if Lebanon does eventually strike oil, it will take years of political and economic reform for the country to profit, which will help no one during the current energy crisis.
0: Can a agreement truly be win-win if both sides don't agree that it's win-win? I'm not sure. I guess we're going to find out. And now financial news coming out of the U.S. midterm elections as banks cut overall donations and boost the share of the Democrats. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the International Business Times, One America News Network, and Wall Street Watchdogs. According to a Reuters analysis of data compiled by the Center for Responsive Politics, commercial banks have greatly reduced financial donations to federal candidates for this election cycle but have increased their proportion to Democrats. With less than a month until the midterms, Commercial Banks Political Action Committees, or PACs, have given about $7.4 million to federal candidates, 43% down from 2020 and 39% down from the average in the previous decade. Though there has been a drop in total funding by banks, the proportion of donations given to Democrats has risen to 40%, the highest since the 2010 election cycle. Of the top 20 congressional recipients of Bank PAC donations this election cycle, 10 were Democrats, compared to 6 in 2020, 3 in 2018, and only 1 ahead of the 2016 elections. Bank of America and Morgan Stanley have donated to more Democrats than Republicans for the first time in over a decade. Meanwhile, Citigroup has split its donations evenly between parties for the first time, and JP Morgan is donating to more Republicans. But at the smallest margin in over 10 years. Presumed reasons for the shift include the January 6th Capitol riot and banks hedging their bets on the midterm outcomes. The GOP has also shown a growing distrust of banks that embrace liberal causes, which has led to some banking PACs courting Democrats instead. Nine of the top 10 recipients this cycle are still Republicans, most notably Patrick McHenry of North Carolina who is likely to chair the House Finance Committee if the GOP takes the majority. The top slot is Democrat Joyce Beatty of Ohio, who chairs the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Diversity and Inclusion.
1: Scott, thank you for the facts of this story. And this story has spawned several spins, beginning with a Republican narrative, and it's courtesy of Newsweek. While rich elitist politicians and woke bankers prioritize the January 6th committee hearings and new diversity, equity, and inclusion agendas, they've blatantly neglected the issues that working-class Americans of all backgrounds actually care about, like inflation and a deteriorating public education system. Democrats are no longer the party of the working class,
0: and they'll face that reality in November. NewsBud brings us the Democratic Narrative. The corporate world is rapidly shifting from its old form of white, conservative men toward a progressive model of social, financial, and environmental equity. Democrats are on the right side of history, so it's no surprise that banks are now choosing to support the forward-thinking party. There's a cynical
1: narrative coming from Guardian. There's too much money flushed into American politics, especially during these midterms. It's dangerous when political consultants and PACs spend millions of dollars to boost their cynical Machiavellian interests, whether it's banks looking out for their industry or Democrats boosting beatable far-right candidates. This poisons the
0: well Americans must drink from as a democracy. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative provided by Metaculus. This one says there's a 41% chance that Republicans will win both the House and Senate in the 2022 midterm elections. Eric, not to underline the cynical narrative, but you think it's a coincidence that the uh, top recipients of these donations are the heads of those financial uh, uh, committees in Congress? (laughs) (laughs) I would think not. They poison the well that we must drink Mm. from.
1: Poetic. More news regarding the U.S. midterms as J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan clash in an Ohio Senate debate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, New York Times, Washington Times, Politico, CNN and Fox News. J.D. Vance, a Republican competing for a spot in the Ohio Senate in the upcoming midterm elections, traded blows with his Democratic rival Tim Ryan in a controversial hour-long debate on Monday. The pair argued over Ryan's portrayal of Vance as a MAGA extremist, issues around foreign policy, and Vance's accusation that Ryan was a career politician. However, they reached a consensus in agreeing that local police departments need to employ more officers. Ryan pledged to revitalize the state's industry, make health care more affordable, and increase wages of elected. Vance accused Ryan of misleading voters, calling him a militant left-winger. The GOP candidate also defended his pro-life stance on abortion and alleged Ryan, who previously opposed abortion but has since changed his view, was lying about his position. Vance has been endorsed by retiring GOP Senator Bob Portman, and former President Trump. The super PAC aligned with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is spending $28 million to boost Vann's campaign, though GOP Governor Mike DeWine is still ahead in the polls. The Democratic Ryan, meanwhile, sought to distance himself from party leadership, saying, quote, everyone is to blame for inflation, that Vice President Kamala Harris is absolutely wrong when she says the border is secure, and that he even backed Trump's trade policies during his tenure. The race to replace Portman's seat in the Ohio Senate will be one of the closest watched races of the midterms. Polls suggest there's little between the current candidates, though Vance currently has a lead over
0: Ryan. The election will take place on November 8th. Believe it or not, Eric, this story about polarization and politics has spun off some pretty polarizing political narratives. Let's start with the Republican narrative from Breitbart. Ryan is blatantly misrepresenting himself and his politics. Despite a constructed and rhetorical effort to appeal to the Trump voters and supporters of the Ohio electorate, he has contradicted himself by saying he wants to kill and confront the MAGA movement. He isn't a bipartisan unifier, but a career politician peddling a false narrative about the extremism of policies that are largely supported in the area he seeks to represent.
1: NBC gives us a Democratic narrative. Monday's debate saw Vance fail to take accountability for the consequences of his own political agenda and fuel division by vilifying moderate Democratic policy. Rather than recognize that the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade, one of the largest governmental overreaches in living memory, has resulted in a widespread loss of bodily autonomy and increased risk for women, he blamed immigration. Ryan is right. Ohioans
0: are tired of this empty rhetoric and want to return to a more moderate policy. The New Yorker brings us a cynical narrative. Both Democrats and Republicans are playing politics in an attempt to secure re-election. A reductive and oversimplified us-versus-them mentality has come to dominate how Americans view themselves and each other. This is an unsustainable state of affairs that can only undermine democracy and eventually result in a social breakdown. The U.S. must work to look beyond this short-termism incentivized by Western democratic models to find common, superordinate goals to depolarize politics.
1: Lastly, there's a nerd narrative. It says that there's a 70% chance that J.D. Vance will win the 2022 U.S. Senate election in Ohio, according to
0: the Metaculous Prediction Community. Interesting. This cynical narrative, while it's certainly very cynical as they usually are, also provides kind of a path to what we need to do to get out of it. That's, that's kind of nice. Until we derail. Until we don't do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in news from India, a Kashmiri separatist leader dies in custody. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Hindu Times, Associated Press, Indian Express, The Tribune, ABC, and Al Jazeera. Altaf Ahmad Shah. A prominent member of Kashmir's separatist group Hurriyat died on Monday night at the All-India Institute of Medical Science, or AIMS, according to his family. The cause of his death hasn't yet been disclosed. Shah had been incarcerated in connection to an alleged terror-funding case for the past five years and lodged in New Delhi's Tihar prison. Last month, he was diagnosed with cancer and transferred to Dr. Ram Manahar Lohia, or RML, hospital. On October 1st, the New Delhi High Court ordered him to be transferred to the Ames, as the RML hospital had no oncology department and allowed his son and daughter to visit him for an hour every day. During the pandemic, his family had appealed several times for him to be released on bail or granted access to better medical care, as Shah also suffered from hypertension and diabetes, leaving him at high risk. He's the fourth separatist leader from India-controlled Kashmir to have died in police custody over the past three years amid a mounting crackdown on Kashmiri rebels by Indian authorities who stripped the region of semi-autonomy in 2019. Both India and Pakistan claim sovereignty over Kashmir, with an armed rebellion claiming the lives of tens of thousands since the late 1980s. Rebels want to either merge with Pakistan or create an independent state. Thank you, Scott. Three spins
1: emerging from this story beginning with an establishment-critical narrative coming from Kashmir Media Service. Al-Taf Shah devoted his life for the secret cause of freedom and deserves to be remembered as a hero of the Kashmiri people. His custodial killing exposes that every other freedom activist jailed in India is under threat as Modi's fascist regime seeks to eliminate them
0: and won't comply with its legal duty to protect their lives. Contrast that with the pro-establishment narrative from Times of India. Though the death of a human being is always sad news, and those grieving the loss of a loved one must be respected, it's important to stick to the truth. Altaf Shah died in custody because he was facing a trial on charges of funding terror activities, and Indian authorities diligently granted him medical treatment for cancer and several other diseases.
1: And there is a nerd narrative. It says there's a 50% chance that India's rating in the Freedom in the World Report will be at least 65.8 in 2023, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. What is our rating in the Freedom in the World Report?
0: India is currently listed as a 66 out of 100, which is partly free. So they're saying that it will only go down, there's a 50% chance of it only going down about a point. And then America, for your information, is currently listed at 83 out of 100, which is classified as free. So we have that going for us. Okay. All right. Thank you, buddy. Which is nice. That is nice.
1: In our next story, Hong Kong will not act on a sanctioned Russian superyacht. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and LA Times. On Tuesday, Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee announced that the city isn't going to seize the superyacht of a Russian businessman who is under Western sanctions. According to Lee, Hong Kong is accountable only to UN sanctions, not unilateral ones imposed by individual jurisdictions. Alexei Mordashov's more than $500 million yacht, Nord, arrived in Hong Kong last week. Mordashov is one of Russia's wealthiest men and is believed to have close ties to Putin. The US, UK, and EU sanctioned the steel billionaire after Russia invaded Ukraine earlier this year. Lee's remarks followed the U.S. State Department's warning that harboring the megayacht could harm the city's reputation as an international financial center. Lee himself is under U.S. sanctions for his alleged role in cracking down on dissent in Hong Kong. Lee criticized the sanctions imposed against individual Hong Kong officials, calling it, quote, a very barbaric act. Mordishoff has already lost one of his smaller boats, the 215-foot Lady M, to Western sanctions. It was seized by Italian police in the port of Imperia in March. Britain handed control over its colony Hong Kong to China in 1997, and Beijing has since set foreign policy for the city, declining to participate in sanctions against Russia for the war in Ukraine.
0: All right, thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an anti-China narrative from BBC News. Hong Kong's decision to provide a safe haven for individuals evading sanctions from multiple jurisdictions has consequences. Its reputation as a financial center requires adherence and compliance with international standards, and its refusal to abide by those rules further calls into question the transparency of its business environment. Global Times
1: gives us a pro-China narrative. The
0: comments by the U.S. State Department are misleading
1: and nothing more than a smear campaign against Hong Kong's business operations. The city, which abides by U.N. sanctions as required, has no legal obligation or authority to impose Western sanctions. Over the years, Hong Kong has maintained a free, open,
0: law-based business climate and will continue to do so. And our next story, Putin meets with the UAE president. Hear the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The College Times, Reuters, and Arab News. Russian President Vladimir Putin hailed his country's relationship with the United Arab Emirates during a meeting with President Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al nayyan or MBZ, on Tuesday, calling it an important factor of stability in the region and the world. During his reception in St. Petersburg, MBZ highlighted the importance of finding political solutions to crises, adding a call to resolve the Ukraine crisis through dialogue, negotiation, and diplomacy. The visit comes less than a week after the Saudi-led OPEC-plus oil cartel, which includes Russia and the UAE, agreed to make steep cuts in oil production despite U.S. pressure. The cut in supply is also expected to be a blow to Democrats in next month's midterm elections. The UAE has maintained close economic ties with Russia and refrained from joining the sanctions imposed on Putin by the West throughout the war in Ukraine. Anwar Gagash, the diplomatic advisor to MBZ, said the meeting between the two leaders was pre-scheduled within the framework of bilateral relations, adding that the war in Ukraine requires an urgent solution. Scott, thank you for the facts. We do have two spins, beginning with a pro-establishment
1: narrative coming from AML Intelligence. Since Putin invaded Ukraine, the US and EU have warned the UAE about the consequences of siding with Russia. With Russian oligarchs fleeing to do business with the UAE to avoid Western sanctions, the inevitable consequences for MBZ will be his country ultimately ending up
0: on the same blacklist as Putin's. Contrast that with this establishment-critical narrative from the national news. Dialogue and diplomatic mechanisms are the only viable route to international peace and security. By remaining neutral, the UAE is in a unique position to potentially negotiate an end to the war with Russia. Luckily, MBZ remains unfazed by the political pressure placed on it by the U.S. and other Western nations since the war began.
1: In our next story, a special report showing that microbial life was possible on ancient Mars. And here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, Independent, Vice, and USA Today. On Monday, French scientists reported that ancient Mars may have had an environment conducive for housing an underground world with microscopic organisms. The scientists concluded that if they existed, the organisms would have been responsible for their own demise by altering the atmosphere and triggering a Martian Ice Age. U.S. and French scientists collaborated using climate models to explore the habitability of Mars during the Noachian, a geological period on the red planet 4.1 billion to 3.7 billion years ago when the planet may have had water on the surface. Boris Sautere, the study's leader and postdoctoral researcher at Sorbonne University, said their findings show a bleak view of life in the cosmos when even the simplest of life forms, quote, might actually commonly cause its own demise. The research published in Nature Astronomy showed that the organisms, hydrogenotrophs, would have lived in the soil and expelled methane, a greenhouse gas, and consumed hydrogen, both of which had an environmental warming effect. In less than 500,000 years, the microbes could have altered the planet's climate, causing a cooling effect that could have pushed temperatures down from around 60 degrees Fahrenheit to below negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Kaveh Pahlivan of the SETI Institute, who conducted a separate study of Mars recently, said that future models of the planet's climate will need to take into consideration on this new data. This study makes clear that if life were present on Mars, they would have had a major influence on the prevailing climate. Sadori will now turn to focus his research on if the microbial life still exists on Mars. The research suggests that the best place to find traces of life are either in the unexplored Hellas Planeta or the Jezero Crater on the northwestern edge of Isidus Planeta,
0: where NASA's Perseverance rover is currently collecting rocks. Thanks, Eric, for those out-of-this-world facts. Narrative A on this story comes from Vice. Despite the bleak finding that life itself could be behind its own destruction, this research is exciting and offers a promising breakthrough in the study of life outside of Earth. Not only does this new information suggest that habitable environments exist within our solar system, but also into the broader galaxy and universe. This will pave the way for future missions that may change our understanding of space. Narrative B coming
1: from USA Today While the idea of life on Mars is fascinating, we must be careful when researching and exploring. Sending expeditions and rovers to Mars could have unintended consequences. History has proven that every time humans explore new places, they take diseases with them and bring new diseases back. Scott, I don't know. I'm a little confused because up until I read this story, I thought men were from Mars.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess they're looking for intelligent life, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) And from a story about a dead planet to our all-too-living one, New Zealand proposes a farm animal tax. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, The Guardian, NBC4 New York, and the CBC. On Tuesday, New Zealand's government proposed taxing greenhouse gases that farm animals make from bodily functions, including belching, in what would be a world first in tackling climate change. The government's proposed plan on agricultural emissions pricing is set to be introduced in 2025. New Zealand has approximately 10 million cattle and 26 million sheep, with agriculture producing nearly half of the country's total greenhouse gas emissions. The proposed scheme includes a farm levy, both for methane released by cows and for nitrous oxide produced by livestock urine. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern stated that cutting emissions will help New Zealand farmers to not only be the best in the world, but the best for the world. However, agricultural lobby groups criticized the plan, saying it would lead to large-scale farm sales and impact food production. Agriculture is vital to New Zealand's economy with dairy products, including those used in infant formula production being the country's most vital exports. New Zealand's government has pledged to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and make New Zealand carbon neutral by the year 2050. Part of the plan includes reducing methane emissions from livestock by 10% by the year 2030 and up to 47% by the year 2050. Scott, thank
1: you for the facts of that story as we look at the spins beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Transcontinental Times. The decision is a revolutionary move. Something has to be done to reduce harmful emissions in New Zealand. As methane is a dangerous greenhouse gas. As the global trendsetter, this decision could potentially give the country a competitive
0: edge globally while also meeting greenhouse gas targets. And the Federated Farmers of New Zealand bring us the establishment critical narrative. The government's greenhouse gas reduction plan will rip the guts out of small town New Zealand. Despite farmers' best efforts, this will inevitably lead to closures that will reduce small town businesses supported by agriculture in a manner that will only be detrimental to the country. This is not a good move for the agricultural sector or the working class.
1: And there is a nerd narrative. It says that there's a 5% chance that if a global catastrophe occurs, it will be due to either human-made climate change or geoengineering, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Thanks for listening to the
0: Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner Inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.